Hi, this is Kendall Boyson, professional life and recovery coach, and you're listening to Encouragementology, the practice of instilling hope. Hi there. Thanks for joining me. On this show, we are sitting up tall, raising our hand, and resisting the urge to cut line as we come to the realization that all I needed to learn, I learned in kindergarten. Think about it. It was our foundation for how to treat other people. Unless you grew up with a gaggle of brothers and sisters, it was your first attempt at socialization. You and 23 other little screaming demons. Remember nap time? Having had children of my own, getting a room full of five-year-olds to lay down and take a nap all at the same time is beyond my comprehension. Magic, I tell you. So what have we been doing since we mastered the basics? We've been formulating strong opinions and judgments and then finding every chance we can to share them. We've forgotten the basics and have started creating our own laws and human decency. Ones that fit and support our own narratives. Do you wish you could give some people a good old-fashioned time out? Notice I didn't say a trip to the woodshed, but I know that's what you're thinking. Ready and willing to take it back old school style? I decided to explore this idea based on a popular book by Robert Fulgham, All I Really Need to Know I Learned in Kindergarten, published in 1990 with 7 million copies sold. Because I found myself shaking my head to outlandish stories of human behavior. The nerve, the gall, the perceived right. Whatever happened to common decency? Two teachers in one of my groups commonly refer to this book when we are left perplexed. So I decided to dig into basic manners that transcend every generation and stage of life, as well as some that have evolved, thank goodness. I think it's important to remember how far we've come, but not to lose sight of the obvious. If it ain't broke, don't fix it. I remember a time when asking someone their age, weight, or salary was a huge no-no. Casual conversation was warned to avoid topics like politics or religion. Personal details were to be offered at a minimum to spare you and the other person. And unless someone offered a window, you didn't pry. Today, someone will ask you who you voted for and if you're vaccinated without a second thought. Then, if you decide to even answer truthfully, you're either congratulated for being in alignment with their thinking or chastised, lectured, and or bullied. Whoa! People, there is a reason you vote behind a black curtain, and your doctor's office is not allowed to share any details at all, period. Personal choice and personal privacy. Respect. I'm sure that's on this list. So let's get started. All I Really Need to Know I Learned in Kindergarten by Robert Fulgham. Share everything. Play fair. Don't hit people. Put things back where you found them. Clean up your own mess. Don't take things that aren't yours. Say you're sorry when you hurt somebody. Wash your hands before you eat. Flush. Warm cookies and cold milk are good for you. Live a balanced life. Learn some and think some 
and draw and paint and sing and dance and play and work every day some. Take a nap every day. When you go out into the world, watch for traffic, hold hands, and stick together. Remember the little seed in the styrofoam cup? The roots go down and the plant goes up, and nobody really knows how or why, but we're all like that. Goldfish and hamsters and white mice and even the little seed in the styrofoam cup will all die, and so do we. And then remember the Dick and Jane books and the first word you learned, the biggest word of all, look. Everything you need to know is in there somewhere. The golden rule and love and basic sanitation, ecology and politics and equality and sane living. Take any one of those items and extrapolate it into sophisticated adult terms and apply it to your family life, or your work, or your government, or your world, and it holds true and clear and firm. Think what a better world it would be if we all, the whole world, had cookies and milk about 3 o'clock every afternoon and then laid down with our blankets for a nap. Or if all governments had a basic policy to always put things back where they found them and then to clean up their own mess. And it's still true. No matter how old you are, when you go out in the world, it's best to hold hands and stick together. Could it really be that simple? Yes, I think it is. I love this line. Remember the Dick and Jane books and the first word you learned, the biggest word of all, look. When you think of the word look, you might think to notice, to learn, to observe. Take the time to notice something, to understand, show empathy. It might signify the opposite of being quick to cast judgment or to insert your ideas and opinions. Just look. Sure, as a teaching guide today, they're a bit outdated, not reflecting the people we see around us. But before we abandon them, let's learn a little bit more about them and what they contributed. Dick, Jane, and America Book explores the impact of reading primers that shape millions of lives by Carol Nitzi Warmblood. This was found at Spokesman.com. If you attended first grade from 1930s through the 60s, you probably learned to read their names, Dick and Jane, before you could write your own. Along with sisters Sally, mother and father, Spaniel Spot, and Kitten Puff, The dandy duo were featured in rapturously illustrated primers that were short on vocabulary and long on repetition. Look, Spot. Oh, look. Look and see. Oh, see. Growing Up with Dick and Jane, Learning and Living the American Dream by Carol Kismark and Marvin Hefferman nostalgically studies the America that produced and was produced by the primers. Over four decades, Dick and Jane taught 85 million first graders. In the 1950s, a full 80% to read. 
The text also represented the perfect pleasures of middle-class life. The family, which never had a last name, dwelt in a suburbia where lawns were weedless and living rooms spotless. Mother wore heels to vacuum and father wore hats to work. Outdated as it seems now, the Dick and Jane reading method was revolutionary. Kismeric and Hefferman write, Early American readers from tracks through the McGuffey and the Baldwin series stress the what? Religious and patriotic values over the reading process. By the 1930s, surveys showed that thousands of children did not read well. Dick and Jane, created by William S. Gray and Zerny Sharp, and drawn by Eleanor Campbell for Scott Forsman Publishers, gave young readers characters and words they could identify with. But Dick and Jane still taught lessons. Be careful crossing the street. Respect mother and father. Use your imagination. The 18th new word in the Dick and Jane vocabulary, the study shows, was work, and its virtues were extolled. I can work, said Dick as he helped set the table. I can work said Jane as she made a dress for her doll. Dick and Jane also practiced religious tolerance. Scott Forsman published a special Catholic edition. By the 1950s, Dick and Jane and Sally were rechristened John, Jean, and Judy after the saints. A Seventh-day Adventist version was also produced. In her 40-year career, Kismeric and Hefferman note, Jane wore more than 200 different ensembles, her clothes were drawn from Sears and Roebuck and Company and Montgomery Ward catalogs. Father bought a new car every five years, though mother didn't get behind the wheel into 1962. The liberating 60s contributed to the series' demise, the study says. There were calls to show mothers going to work, fathers helping in the home. Educators stressed the need for more phonics. On TV, Sesame Street taught young viewers to read in a multiracial environment. In 1965, Scott Forsman included black neighbors to the series when Mike and his twin sisters, Pam and Penny, moved down the block. But Kazmarek and Hefferman write, Dick and Jane were no longer like the majority of kids who were reading about them, not even white, middle-class kids. What do you remember from your childhood? Recent brain research indicates that birth to age three are the most important years in a child's development. But since most of us can't remember that far back, let's gather some of our most impactful messages. Hmm. My dad told me drinking beer would put hair on my chest. He also told me I have one foot in poverty, so don't forget it. My mother said never be the last one talking or the loudest. She also said children should be seen and not heard. My grandfather said, if you don't want to be late, leave a little early. My sixth grade teacher, Mr. Crane, told me, God loves you, even if nobody else does. My driver's ed teacher, Mr. Smith, told me a blinker signal only means it works. I have so many more, but they usually surface situationally, and then, aha, I know exactly where that pearl of wisdom came. What kind of pearls can you pass on? Karen Antonini reminds us with Bring Back Basic Manners, please, by the Today Parenting Team. When Fred Astaire said the hardest job kids face today is learning good manners without seeing any, I wonder if he was looking into a crystal ball. 
our society seems to have lost its civility. In fact, people can be downright rude. We see it in road rage, in restaurants, and in basic day-to-day interactions with other people. So it's no wonder that our children suffer from the trickle-down effect of this poor behavior. Having good manners boils down to three things. Respect, awareness, and empathy for others. Society today is without a doubt much more informal than when many of us were growing up, from the way we address elders to relaxed and casual dress. But it doesn't mean that manners can just be summarily tossed aside. Good manners are critical and would set children apart from their impolite counterparts, as well-behaved children tend to get along better with their peers, have a better rapport with their teachers, and down the line will be well more readily accepted in the workplace and in different social situations. Manners are also necessary for fostering things like social-emotional skills in the classroom, building self-confidence and interacting with other cultures, especially in settings and locations where manners and etiquette are compulsory. In today's world, we can visit a neighboring community and experience a different way of living. So the sooner kids are aware of their surroundings, the better. Parents are the key to making good manners happen. So it's essential that we build the foundation in the home. We need to model good behavior for our children to follow so it becomes routine. Yes, it's a 24-7 commitment that starts in the early years. But encouraging this good behavior will pay dividends when you realize that your child is well-received, stands out, and is able to fit in anywhere. So here are basic manners every kid should know. Say please, thank you, and you're welcome. Look someone in the eye when you say hello and shake hands. Address adults properly. Mr., Ms., Mrs., Dr., Respect other people's belongings and homes. Don't enter without knocking. Don't touch things that don't belong to you without asking. And no jumping on the furniture. Help others. Hold a door open. As a guest, offer to set or clear a table and lend a hand. Here are some tips for helping kids remember their P's and Q's. Make manners fun by exaggerating them. Use please, thank you, and you're welcome at any given opportunity. Say such things as, why thank you, young lady or young man. Kids will get a hang of it really quickly. Say hello to your child and exaggerate the eye contact and firm handshake. Post a list of basic manners on your fridge. Prep your child with a list of reminders before playdates and sleepovers. It will help solidify good behavior and make it more routine. Model good behavior. Help an elderly person with an errand. Be kind to people you meet in your daily routine. Extend the common courtesy for your children to see. I can remember picking up my children from a sleepover or a day out like a play date, and I would hear something so encouraging. Your child was so nice. They always say please and thank you. They're very helpful. What an awesome feeling. I can also remember noticing other children and making a comment. Wow, that child had really good manners. What about you? Like I said in the beginning, I think we all had them, but what happened to them? I remember when my children were little, they had to ask to get into the refrigerator. 
clean their plate, ask to be excused, say yes ma'am and no ma'am. But as they grew and my career became more demanding, we started to slack. I mean, policing good behavior is a full-time job, right? I know, I know, modern times call for modern measures. But what about a healthy balance? In our pursuit to even the scale, let's look at much-needed evolution as a way to appreciate where we've come from as we fight to sprinkle in the basics that should never be forgotten. Anya Kane gives us five things that used to be basic manners, but people no longer do, found at thebusinessinsider.com. When we talk about modern manners, we seem to always wax nostalgic about how folks were more polite back in the day. It's unclear where that means things were better, in the 1870s or the 1950s, or just the era before smartphones. Either way, from what you read about the kids these days, it seems the good times are long behind us. The problem is, all of that is most likely bunk. The British Psychological Society released a report in 2016 indicating that people might just perceive more rudeness from strangers nowadays because we're kind of full of ourselves. What we're truly discussing is the decline of formality, which can necessarily be conflated with good manners or basic human decency. People have always been nice and rude, and just about everything in between. Manners simply change with time and context. Here are some old-fashioned manners that have fallen by the wayside. Number one, requiring men to tend to women in public. Back in the day, men weren't just expected to hold doors for women. They were to help them put on their coats, ease them out of their seats, order food for them, and pay for every meal. That may seem excessive to us, but it was simply good manners back until gender norms began to budge in U.S. in the 1960s and 70s. Of course, people can adopt whatever old school manners they want in their personal life as long as everyone's happy. But nowadays, this barrage of attentiveness wouldn't be considered courteous. Business Insider previously reported, in fact, many would find it patronizing and disconcerting. Number two, addressing people by their last name and title. Throughout much of modern history, it would have been considered catastrophically impertinent to address a new acquaintance, especially one higher social rank than you, by the first name. Today, in some situations, it's best to stick to a level of formality. A 2013 survey in the UK found people really don't like telemarketers calling them by their first names. However, it's becoming less common for people to insist on being addressed by their title and last name. Business Insider's Shanna Leibowitz reported, A 1992 study from the National Center of Biotechnology Information found 45% of patients preferred to be called by their first names when meeting a physician for the first time, and 26% of respondents had no preference. When it came to doctors whom they knew well, 78% of patients wanted to be called by their first names. Keep in mind, this isn't true across all cultures. Alan Hart writes in Going to Live in France that pulling this with an acquaintance in Paris could be considered a case of brash over-familiarity.
Number three, leaving calling cards. Back in the day, people would leave each other calling cards to introduce themselves or let absent friends know they had visited. There were all sorts of complicated rules surrounding the practice. Then phones were invented and social media happened. Etiquette experts agree that leaving calling cards is effectively dead nowadays. Number four, dressing up to go on a plane. There's a keen sense of nostalgia for the glamorous air travel of decades past. People used to dress up for flights, like they were going out to a nice dinner or a fancy event. Some airlines even had dress codes. In a thread reflecting on past airline norms, users remembered smartly dressed passengers, cabins thick with cigarette smoke, and even casual visits to the cockpit. The deregulation of the airlines in the 1970s led to fewer perks, according to the Boston Globe's Christopher Merther. It also helped lower flight costs and democratize air travel. Today, most people try to keep things casual in terms of what they wear on the plane. But there's still a small incentive for dressing up, according to insider Sophie Claire Holler. Fashionably dressed customers are more likely to get an upgrade. Number five. Telling girls to assage male egos at all costs. The 1959 etiquette book, She Manners, encouraged teenage girls to forget your own desires for importance in order to please men, compliment him on his physical prowess, his mental acumen, his good looks, his virility. The worst mistake a girl can make is to make a man feel intellectually inferior or inadequate as a male. Today, most relationship advice hinges upon both partners fulfilling each other's emotional needs. And this male-centric wisdom hasn't aged well. Right, okay, it's a good thing we've seen some much-needed evolution. But I read and watch a lot of historical content. I can't help but love some of the more formal traditions. Dressing up for work and for dinner. Addressing people with more formality, at least until you're told otherwise relying on polite interactions and actually communicating with others versus all of this telecommunication. I think being familiar is great, but it takes time to get to know someone and establish rapport before you ask to cross personal lines or just barrel right through them. Okay, I am on my third time through the Downton Abbey series, so I could be a little biased. Over at StartsAt60.com, I found out what happened to good manners. The baby boomer generation, perhaps more than any other, has seen an incredible change in society and the way we live our lives. Some changes have been fantastic. Technology, for example, has revolutionized the way we live. But others haven't been quite so positive. One of the sad changes is the demise of basic manners and the art of being polite. So what happened to our manners? As our lives have gotten busier, we've declared ourselves in too much of a rush to take a few seconds or minutes out to do something kind. Perhaps technology has in fact become the primary mode of communication, and the human interaction, which manners are a large part of, has become redundant and therefore so have our manners. Or perhaps it comes down to education and society as a whole. We're focused on casual lifestyles and less formal occasions. We're focused on teaching our children how to be smart and intelligent, 
but not the great pillars of society as we once focused on with equal importance. Whatever the reason is, I believe it's quite sad. So today, let's reflect on well-mannered time. These are 10 things that I wish people still did regularly today. Writing and sending thank you notes. There was something so special about receiving and sending thank you notes. It was a way of showing someone that you truly do appreciate what they've done for you. And with just a few moments for each letter, it was a few moments out of your day that contributed to someone else's happiness. Saying thank you is still around, but showing thanks is long gone. Actual RSVPs. Remember when people gave actual RSVPs about their attendance to events and functions and hosts didn't have to assume, follow up with a caterer for larger numbers just in case? Remember those days? Baking for people. When a friend moved, when they were sick, when they were looking after other people, or when they simply had something to celebrate, we once would cook a meal, some muffins or a cake, and deliver them in person. It was a way of showing that we cared and was a simple, cost-effective way of simply doing something nice for someone else. Holding the door open. No matter where you were, if you were walking through a door, the person in front of you would hold it open or at least hand it over to you so there was no door slammed in your face. These days, people seem to be on a mission to get to places quickly and very rarely do this. Taking your hat off indoors. It was the polite thing to do. You wore hats outside for sun protection. And if you were inside, unless you were at a wedding or a funeral, the hats were always taken off and placed down. We're not sure why or where this tradition went, but it doesn't seem to happen anymore. Men opening car doors. Men are not taught to look after a woman as they once did, and this means that they don't often jump ahead to open a car door for someone else. Some of this coincides with the fact that women began to object to this type of behavior as part of the feminist stance that women are equal to men and deserve no special treatment. Keeping your elbows off the table. The entire suite of manners at the dinner table that we once saw every day has diminished to very little. It's rare to walk into a restaurant and see a family use their cutlery correctly, eat their food with proper etiquette, and keep their elbows off the table. My father would always say, no uncooked joints at the table. And that seems to be a lesson somewhat lost. Keeping money and politics out of conversations. These were two topics off limits. However, now some wear their opinions and financial positions as a badge of honor and use them to distinguish between the company they'd like to keep and the company they aren't fond of. Standing up when people enter a room. This was a favorite of mine. It was always a pleasant way of greeting people, and it was a sign of respect, ultimately the thing we've lost the most. Sadly, very few people are taught to do this now, and it's becoming a thing of the past. 
Okay, we've had a bit of fun visiting manners of the past and holding on to ones we fiercely don't want to let go of. But doesn't it all come down to self-awareness? Having empathy for your fellow human? I feel like the person who cut you off while they were rushing to get to work didn't actually realize you were late too. Or the person who openly shared their disdain for religion in a meeting you were in didn't actually understand how much your church family has meant to you over the last two years. The person that raised their voice at you, fueled by a bad day at work, didn't realize that you too had a bad day and were trying to find positivity before you hit your front door and had to take care of your family. Self-awareness is key to understanding how you relate to the world and with those around you. Meredith Best enlightens us with what is self-awareness and why is it important? This was found at BetterUp.com. Do you want to be happier, have more influence, be a better decision maker, and be a more effective leader? Self-awareness, then, is the most important muscle you need to develop. It's what will keep you on target to be the best version of yourself and the best leader you can be. Psychologists Shelley Duvall and Robert Wicklum produce this definition. Self-awareness is the ability to focus on yourself and how your actions, thoughts, or emotions do or don't align with your internal standards. If you're highly self-aware, you can objectively evaluate yourself, manage your emotions, align your behavior with your values, and understand correctly how others perceive you. Put simply, those who are highly self-aware can interpret their actions, feelings, and thoughts objectively. It's a rare skill, as many of us spiral into emotionally driven interpretations of our circumstances. Developing self-awareness is important because it allows leaders to assess their growth and effectiveness and change course when necessary. There are two states of self-awareness. One is public self-awareness, being aware of how we can appear to others. Because of this consciousness, we're more likely to adhere to social norms and behave in ways that are socially acceptable. While there are benefits to this type of awareness, there's also the danger of tipping into self-consciousness. Those who are especially high in this trait may spend too much time worrying about what others think of them. And then there's private self-awareness, being able to notice and reflect on one's internal state. Those who have private self-awareness are introspective, approaching their feelings and reactions with curiosity. For example, you may notice yourself tensing up as you are preparing for an important meeting. Noticing the physical sensations and correctly attributing them to your anxiety about the meeting would be an example of private self-awareness. When self-awareness tips into self-consciousness, we're reluctant to share certain aspects of ourselves. We develop a persona that lacks authenticity. The Uric Group has researched the nature of self-awareness. Their research indicates that when we look inward, we can clarify our values, thoughts, feelings, behaviors, strengths, and weaknesses. We're able to recognize the effect that we have on others. Yurik's research finds that people with self-awareness are happier and have better relationships. 
They also experience a sense of personal and social control, as well as higher job satisfaction. When we look outward, we understand how people view us. People who are aware of how people see them are more likely to be empathetic to people with different perspectives. Leaders whose self-perception matches others' perceptions are more likely to empower, include, and recognize others. There are many benefits of self-awareness. It gives us the power to influence outcomes. It helps us to become better decision makers. It gives us more confidence. So as a result, we communicate with clarity and intention. It allows us to understand things from multiple perspectives. It frees us from assumptions and biases. It helps us build better relationships. It gives us greater abilities to regulate our emotions. It decreases stress and it makes us happier. Self-awareness is a staple in contemporary leadership jargon. Although many leaders will brag about how self-aware they are, only 10 to 15% of the population fit the criteria. Many of us grew up with the message that you shouldn't show your emotions, so we attempted to ignore or suppress them. With negative emotions, that doesn't go very well for us. We either internalize them, resulting in anger, resentment, depression, or resignation, or we externalize them and blame, discount, or bully others. Lack of self-awareness can be a significant handicap in leadership. A study conducted by Adam D. Galinsky and colleagues at the Northwestern's Kellogg School of Management found that often as executives climb the corporate ladder, they become more self-assured and confident. On the downside, they tend to become more self-absorbed and less likely to consider the perspectives of others. In a separate study, Canadian researchers looked at brain activity in people who are in positions of power. They found psychological evidence to conclude that as power increases, the ability to empathize with others decreases. They become less able to consider the needs and perspectives of others. Fundamentally, these leaders don't think they need to change and instead require change from everyone else. Don't despair if you don't make the 10 to 15% of self-awareness cut. If you want to know how self-aware you are, the INLP Center has 12 multiple choice questions that will tell you the level of your self-awareness and what you can do to improve it. The assessment is research-based and developed by Mike Bundrant, neuro-linguistic trainer and life coach. The Values in Action Inventory of Strength, the VIAIS, is a great tool for you to use to identify your dominant strengths and is free on the VIA website. It measures your answers across six broad categories with a total of 24 strengths. How to Become a More Self-Aware Person Hmm, what can we do? First of all, envision yourself. Visualize the best version of yourself. Ideal selves reflect our hopes, dreams, aspiration, and speak to our skills, abilities, achievements, and accomplishments that we wish to attain. As you lean into your strengths to become the better version of yourself, 
you can use this idealized self to keep moving in the right direction and not be distracted by setbacks and other obstacles. Ask the what questions. At the core of self-awareness is the ability to self-reflect. However, the Uric group contends that most people are going about reflection in the wrong way. The trouble is we ask ourselves the wrong questions. In other attempts to resolve internal conflict, we asked why. Yet there's no way to answer that question since we don't have access to our unconsciousness. Instead, we make up answers that may not be accurate. The danger of the why question is that it sends us down a rabbit hole of our negative thoughts. We focus on our weaknesses and insecurities. Consider Amy, a new junior executive who has difficulty speaking up in meetings. She may explain her experience to herself by thinking, I don't speak up in meetings because I fall too low on the corporate food chain. No one's going to listen to me anyway. Asking the what question puts us into the objective and open space of considering all the factors influencing our particular outcome. For example, instead of why don't I speak up in meetings, we could ask, what were the interpersonal dynamics in the room? What was I experiencing in my body at that time? What happened that caused me to go into my old story of not being good enough? What can I do to overcome my fear of speaking up? This kind of introspection allows us to look at behaviors and beliefs for what they are. With self-awareness, we can examine old patterns and stories that don't serve us, and then we can move on. Asking the right questions empowers us to make different choices that bring different results. Amy decides to make a plan because now she understands that she has a chance at overcoming her problem. She's going to find out more about the content and goals of the upcoming meeting to become more confident in what she can contribute. Rather than being consumed by imagining what others are thinking of her, she'll actively listen for cues to ask meaningful questions that move the conversation forward. With a heightened awareness of the cues her body is giving her, signaling fear and anxiety, she'll name the emotion at the moment and choose not to be overwhelmed by it. One giant step to self-awareness. Use your brain. The amygdala, also called the primitive brain, was the first part of the brain to develop in humans. It functioned as kind of a radar signaling the need to run away or fight back. That part of the brain is skilled at anticipating danger and reacts before we can even name a negative emotion. Our heart races, our stomach tightens, and our neck muscles tense up. Your body's reaction is a type wire signaling the prefrontal cortex to register or name a negative emotion. If you bring awareness to your physical state, you can at the moment recognize the emotion as it's happening. Becoming skillful at this rewires your brain. Naming your feelings is critical in decision making. When we let our feelings overwhelm us, we can make bad decisions with unintended consequences. Naming your emotions allows us to take a third-person perspective to stand back and more objectively evaluate what's going on. Let's bring this home with an example. You, a self-aware person, are having a conversation with someone and receiving some negative feedback. 
your heart starts to race and you're feeling threatened. You say to yourself, I feel like this person is attacking me. But before you cry or go ballistic, you stop yourself and hear the person out. You discover that this person had at least one good point and start up a different conversation, one that's mutually satisfying and productive. Ask others about their perception of you. Now that you've discovered that feedback doesn't have to be scary, ask other people how they perceive you in certain situations. Getting specific will help to give you the most concrete feedback. Get brave and ask them how they would like to see you behave. Practice mindfulness. Mindfulness is a practice. It helps you be aware of what's going on in your mind, body, and environment. Meditation is one of the few practices that you can insert into your daily life, and practicing mindfulness is a wonderful tool for developing greater self-control. The road to self-awareness is a journey. The most self-aware people see themselves on a quest to mastery rather than at a particular destination. As you move forward in developing your self-awareness, ask yourself regularly. How will you move toward the best version of yourself today? If you want to share Encouragementology with a friend who needs to know they are not alone in this journey of self-discovery, You can visit EncouragementOlogy.com or anywhere you stream your content to receive this episode and all others. Follow us on Facebook for additional encouragement throughout the week. So I challenge you, please take some time to revisit the basics to see what might have gotten left behind during your evolution. Look to see, take time to understand, put yourself in their shoes, and then act appropriately. I know you can do it. Thank you for listening to Encouragementology with Kendall Boyson, where we find positive ways to handle some of life's challenges. Somewhere through until the path was clear. That's when I found you. How I